Good morning, Twitter. I'm Hayes Brown. This is Katie Natopoulos, and this is AM to DM. Um, let's get right into the news. So over the weekend, several wildfires continued to grow in California. The Camp Fire in the north of the state has grown into one of the most destructive fires in California's history, scorching more than 6,700 homes. So far, at least 31 deaths have been confirmed as being caused by the fires. Here again joining us with the latest is BuzzFeed News' Brianna Sachs. Good morning, Bri. Hey. You have been going just nonstop, it feels like, since we talked to you last Friday. To catch people up, how many fires are still active and threatening California right now? So there's two major ones that are the, the biggest threat to, to California. The one which is where I am, which is the Woolsey Fire, Southern California. Uh, and then, the, as you mentioned, the, the Camp Fire, which has become the state's like, most destructive and almost the most deadly. So how contained are these fires right now? Um, not that much. The, the Woolsey fire where I'm at is at 15%. So that's good news. It jumped about 5% um, yesterday, like last night. Uh, and I'm going to check the, the latest figures when they release them here in about 30 minutes. But the winds weren't as bad as we were expecting. This, the Santa Ana's, which is like this um, dry wind event that we get every year and makes these fires uh, pretty erratic and uh, destructive. What's been the biggest reason why it's been so difficult to extinguish, in, extinguish these fires? Is it just that there's not enough firefighters available? No, I mean, I, I, I think that we would always love more firefighters, but it's just because that they, they move so fast. That's what all these firefighters say is like um, the speed which which they consume acreage is just become like unprecedented. And there's a lot of dry vegetation here. Like California's really been in the, the crux of a, of a, pretty devastating drought for a long time. So um, all these mountains and gorges and everything are filled with dry vegetation and the fire just like eats through that like crazy. What's the, like the best case scenario right now that it rains? <laughs> I mean, uh, that's always the best case scenario for California. Like, please rain. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be great. And then also that the winds that we don't have any more of these like, um, these wind events, which is is the the biggest problem, so firefighters can can then build a containment line, which means they like use bulldozers and shovels to dig in the dirt kind of around the fire, and then the fire then goes into that and, and dies off, and then they can kind of like shrink it, you know. So without wind, that's much easier to do. Well, well, this weekend the president had this to say: there is no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California, except that forest management is so poor. Billions of dollars are given each year with so many lives lost, all because of gross mismanagement of the forests. Remedy now or no more Fed payments. Is there any truth to that claim that the fires were because of mismanagement of the forests? No, there's no forests here like where we are, especially in Southern California. Um, you know, the California Professional Firefighters Union, along with um, a Pasadena Fire Association, which is like another town out here, totally slammed him for that, calling it ill-informed, demeaning and... and like insulting to victims because actually like, I think he said like 60% of federal uh, or forest here, forest land here is federally managed and the federal government, he said, is the one who's diverted resources away from that. So, you know, not our, not our, not our problem or fault. So right now, uh, more than a quarter of a million people have had to be evacuated from their homes in the area. Where are they going? 
Yeah. That's the craziest thing. Um, cause there's like, yeah, like that, like whole towns have been evacuated. Like Calabasas last night was like 24,200 people. Um, there are a lot of shelters in the area that, you know, they keep getting at capacity. A lot of colleges have become, I was at last night at Pierce college in Woodland Hills, which is kind of by Calabasas. And, you know, they're, they're holding about, you know, a few hundred people here and there, a lot of hotels, um, Airbnb, I met a couple that were like, we're just going to drive to Palm Springs and like figure it out because like we just need to get away. And that's like two hours from here. So, you know, family, friends, a lot of shelters, um, hotels, just kind of wherever they can find space. So people were camping at the beach out in Malibu with like their horses for a few days. It's, it's been a little uh, frenzied. Brie, you're a native Californian. How is your family doing right now? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Malibu. We still have my um, my childhood home there. We're doing okay. Our house is okay. We we lost a structure which was holding all our um, baby childhood fo- uh, photos and family albums and like all those mementos, which has um, been pretty devastating. But um, you know, I we're really lucky. Our house made it. I have so many friends I grew up with whose houses are gone. Um, so it's it's been kind of weird to to be in the the city and just see how destroyed it is. Thank you so much, Bree, and stay safe yeah. out there. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, shifting gears. On a different note, there's actually apparently huge drama going down in a Facebook group for people who enjoy making fun of all things strangers' engagement rings. So this group is called That's It, I'm Ring Shaming, uh, <laughs> and it has almost 20,000 members. Miles Clee from Mel Magazine tweeted, I got torn apart and then banned by the secret ring shamey group on Facebook for writing about their page. And I gotta say, they serve a better roast than the alt-right does over here. <laughs> Miles is with us this morning to talk about his adventures. Hello, Miles. Hi, how's it going? Uh, so first of all, why does this group exist? <laughs> um, so that's an interesting question, you know, uh, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the way wedding narratives play out online and social media these days, mm-hmm. uh, beginning, of course, with the engagement shot. So uh, when you find out someone's married, the first thing you usually see on Instagram is the uh, close up uh, of their ring. Right. Um, and so that inspires a lot of feelings, you know, whether or not you're happy for the person, you probably have a judgment of the ring. And um, this is just a place for people to get really uh kind of no holds barred about that. Okay, so that all makes sense, but where's the drama come in? What actually happened that sparked so much controversy? Uh, well, there was one particular post uh, that, you know, could have been a joke. Uh, you know, the context is hard to decide really because all we saw was a screenshot of it. Uh, so that got onto Reddit and Twitter. And what the post said was, um, or it presented itself as a woman having found a ring in her boyfriend's nightstand that she presumed was uh, for her that he hadn't proposed yet, but she uh, he was going to. Um, and she didn't like the ring. Um, so she said she was self-shaming about the ring, uh, just wanted everyone to roast the ring. Um, so it's unclear whether she was you know totally serious about that or just misrepresenting the situation. But uh, because that screenshot got around, uh, people just uh, kind of took that as what was going on in the group generally. Um, And they kind of freaked out that this group even existed, uh, that this particular woman was maybe shaming her boyfriend for uh, a pretty nice looking ring, I thought. I mean, I'm not an expert, so. (laughs) Um, To that, I say, yikes. Um, But 
how secret was this group? It had 20,000 people. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, it wasn't even, uh, a, a, well, it was a closed group, so I did have to apply to join. I was kind of surprised that they let me in. It didn't seem like the uh, barriers to entry were that strict. <laughs> uh, they had tried to kind of conceal the group a little bit better after this initial post went viral. Uh, they just kind of reversed the uh, this the script of uh, that's it, I'm ring shaming, so that it appeared backwards. Uh, but I found that in about 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I joined... Um, and it was not really as it was represented, uh, you know, in some of the earlier coverage about it. Um, it wasn't just uh, mocking people's Instagram photos or anything like that. Sometimes it was just taking screenshots of a ring uh, that was for sale somewhere else on Etsy or a jewelry site and just making fun of it. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a little bit more um, interesting than or, you know, at least not as purely petty as it was represented early on. So what is it about engagement rings that makes so many people want to shame them and want to like roast the heck out of them, as you said on uh, Twitter? Yeah, well, I think there's, um, there are definitely feelings of kind of bitterness and jealousy associated with kind of the bridal industrial complex uh, that you see. But I also think uh, there was an interesting subtext to the group that was kind of about the uh, impossibility of perfection and uh, what brides are supposed to live up to. And, you know, every, everyone has um, the idea of what a perfect ring would be, what a per perfect marriage would be, what a perfect, you know, wedding ceremony would be. And it's all very personal, right? So, like, you know, the ring is really what it means to you, I think. Um, and to everyone else, uh, it's just kind of an opportunity to judge. So, you know, even when you're at a wedding and you're enjoying it and it's your friend and you're happy for them, you can... Um, you, you can look at the food or the bar situation or <laughs> the decoration and kind of, you know, have your own private, uh, maybe even slightly toxic view of it. But um, it's just because it's not your thing and it's not for you. Um, so you're coming for, coming at it from an outside view. Well, thank you so much for that, Miles. And I just want to say congratulations on your future Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting for this. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, um, Hayes. Yeah? I'm thirsty. Uh, Okay. Um, and do you know why? Have you been hydrating? We have a mug right here for you. I always stay hydrated, but um, <laughs> in this case, um, I'm thirsty because Tide has announced it, it has a new eco-friendly packaging. Okay. Um, and it's meant for like Amazon or Walmart shipments so that it doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to have the plastic jug right. in bubble wrap in a box. It's uh, it's just a cardboard box. Wait, this is no. it. No. And uh, inside it has a you know a sealed bladder and then a delightful little nozzle, <laughs> and it goes into a cup, um, so it can just ship directly. Um, and uh, that's hey, a box of wine, Katie. Yeah, yeah, that's that is one hundred percent a box of wine. Yeah. What? No. <laughs> so I am not alone here, and you are not alone in thinking that this looks like uh, Franzia. So uh, we have Eleanor Robinson who tweeted, geez, if you think kids like eating Tide Pods now, wait till you give it to them in a goon bag. Wait, time out, what's a goon bag? So that is uh, Australian slang for wine in a box. That sounds terrible in Australian, so uh, checks out. Yep, um, and Sempu Sachil tweeted, give me a sip. Mm -hmm. Now this is in, you know, in response to CNN broke the news that, right. uh, about this packaging. Right. 
Um, and there were there were a lot of other people who also, you know, believed that this looked, you know, Box drinkable. And so, Dr. Pluto A. Planet, I'm pretty sure that's a PhD, not a medical doctor, um, <laughs> <laughs> said, slap the bag. Terrible game. Don't play that game. <laughs> Horrible choice. Um, and Enrique Caballero said, of course, shot, shot. Okay, um, no. This is the worst thing that you could have brought to me. Procter & Gamble, what are you doing gambling with our lives like this? Um, have you learned nothing? That's a great question. I, uh, this news just broke this morning. I reached out to Procter & Gamble to find out uh, if they have concerns about the reaction, which was immediately about thinking it looks like delicious, delicious laundry wine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, uh, Twitter, Twitter, <laughs> I gotta know. What do you think? Does the new Tide box look like Franzia? Yeah. Would you drink it? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Also, I can't believe I have to say this, but legal is making me. Please do not drink laundry detergent. Drink laundry detergent. Don't listen to Katie. <laughs> Up next, we've got your fire tweets, hot and fresh. But first, please watch this very special PSA from Isaac Fitzgerald. <laughs> I'm AM to DM's Isaac Fitzgerald. On Wednesday's show, I threw a Tide Pod up into the air and caught it in my mouth. It looked cool as hell. But there is nothing cool about putting Tide Pods in your mouth. Tell your friends, tell your family, don't eat Tide Pods. We're sharing this message with you because here at AM to DM, we care. Welcome back, Twitter. We have some fire tweets for you this fine Monday morning. Starting off with Linda, who tweeted, Ah! My class got canceled today. And by canceled, I mean I canceled it because I didn't go. I go to school, kids. You pay so much for that college education. Get your degree right. My strat was always go to classes, but don't do the reading. Oh, see, mine yeah. was the reverse. Don't mm -hmm. do the reading, but go to class. And that's why my GPA was sad. <laughs> Stick with my plan, kids. Team Katie. Um, Ibby tweeted, Me, I need to start saving money. Someone, hi. Me, you're right, we should go out to eat. Oh, that is an uh, attack on me, I feel mm -hmm. like. How dare you, Ibby? Tweet that at me directly. Except I don't even need the someone, I just have like the <laughs> thought. Wouldn't fast food be great? I agree, Sal. I feel like there's a bubble where you, you sometimes think if someone else is wanting you to do it, it counts as free money. Oh yeah, for sure, you know? 100%. All right, next up, friend of the show, Ashley C. Ford. You tweet it. My cousin posted a video of himself doing a 700 pound squat and I pulled my groin putting on Spanx. Ouch. Ouch, hopefully Ouch. you got Kelly there to put some ice on that for you. Um, all right, our own Ryan Mack. Tweeted, I feel extremely judged because someone smashed our car window, got into our car, and then didn't <laughs> take anything. Who goes through the effort of breaking into a car and then doesn't take anything? At least take some mints or the hand sanitizer. Right? My property is valuable. Steal it, thieves! How dare you! Yeah, it's, it's rude, honestly. It is. It's not like an Uber where you have the choice. No, you take my stuff. Yeah. Escrate, you tweeted. <laughs> Y'all ever send a risky text and you so scared you start doing chores? Yes, yes I have in fact. My kitchen floors 
were never cleaner than after I hit send and was just waiting. I have like a digital version of that. Like at work, when I send a risky email, I will actually like clean the desktop icons off my desktop. Oh, like all the wow. screenshots. Like I'll be like, eh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the tweet of the day is from Stephen Ph. Ah. My landlord is obsessed with rent rent that was literally due weeks ago. Move on, babe. Just move on. You're uh, not getting the cash. Just yeah. skip. <laughs> Pass. Yeah. Um, shout out to shout my out. if my landlord ever did. I've ever tried that on my landlord. I uh, he would not tolerate that for me. I feel like I wish my landlord was obsessed with fixing the leak in my roof. Ooh. Hopefully he gets yeah. on that then. All right, coming up. I sit down with author Eva Chen. Up next, though, we are going live from the district. Stay tuned, everyone. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning. Hey, long time no see, Paul. How was Orlando? Happiest place on earth. Tell us all about it. I'm just happy I got out of Florida before all of the recount craziness happened and poor Dom had to take that bullet. And then I went to the least Florida place I could think of, Vermont, which was lovely. So thank you to the good people of Burlington. You were great. I feel like Vermont is just an upside down Florida, though, you know, in its own way. When you're really thinking about it. Yeah. Here's a tweet from the president. The Florida election should be called in favor of Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis in that large numbers of new ballots showed up out of nowhere and many ballots are missing or forged. An honest vote count is no longer possible. Ballots massively infected must go with election night. Well, I was not aware the ballots could contract infections, uh, so good to know. Uh, but Paul, what is going on with the Florida recounts? Well, to start off, Basically, don't take anything that the president tweets at face value. There is no evidence of this rampant voter fraud that he is alleging. These ballots do not come out of nowhere. This is a part of the process. It's a messy part of the process, but this is not a shock. Um, but we, yeah, we've got uh, three recounts going. Two, the two main ones is, of course, governor and the Senate seat. Both of those Republicans initially won as more and more uh, secondary ballots, mail-in ballots have come in. The Democrats have tightened the gap, but at the moment, Republicans holding on to both of those races. But it's pretty close. And in particular for the Senate seat, it's looking, I mean, the distance between Bill Nelson, who's a Democratic incumbent, and Rick Scott, who's the governor running for that Senate seat, uh, the distance is something like 12,000 votes out of 8 million cast. It's so tight that this could go to a manual recount. That's the way it's headed right now. So. So uh, this could go on for several more days. That is crazy close. 12,000 out of 8 million. Well, how is Scott reacting to all of this? Uh, Scott is kind of uh, copying the president's approach. He's accused Bill Nelson of being a sore loser. Uh, basically, flat out said that Democrats are trying to steal the seat, which, you know, again, there is no evidence that there is any kind of widespread voter fraud here. But uh, he is taking the president's line on it. Isn't Rick Scott kind of in a precarious position, like being the governor and running for Senate and also sort of having to preside over these two tight races? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't have enough time for me to get into this whole thing. But this is, to me, one of the most insane things about the American democratic apparatus is that because the states run these elections, you have massive conflict of interest where you have people who are running for seats overseeing their own elections. I mean. 
what should happen is there should be an arm's length nonpartisan federal election commission that runs these elections and that way you would not only avoid situations like this you would avoid situations like you know the gerrymandering the 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 hodgepodge of voter id laws that we have across all the different states it could all be decided centrally and it could run a lot smoother but we don't live in that world we live in this world and in this world yeah rick scott is essentially overseeing his own his own election race so over in Georgia, in the governor's race there, uh, Brian Kemp resigned as Secretary of State uh, so that he could take part in a runoff against Stacey Abrams. What do you think the odds are that Rick Scott steps down and lets someone else handle the recount here? Uh, I mean, that does, that does not seem to be happening, although uh, it, the um, uh, lieutenant governor of the state there is, uh, is handling things in a seemingly nonpartisan way and has, you know, the, the officials, the state officials have come out and confirmed that there is no widespread voter fraud. So even though the governor himself has made noises about that, it looks like the actual functioning part of the state body is still handling this responsibly. So what are the chances of these races actually being called for Nelson and Gillum? Uh, Gillum's probably a tough one. Um, it's a little bit more distance there. Uh, it, uh, it, it Something very surprising would have to happen for him to win. The Nelson one, I mean, it's, it's tighter. As I say, this is the one that could go to a manual recount. So uh, certainly that one, you have to say, is still up in the air. Republicans have an edge in both you would have to you know it's have both would be the favorites but in particular in that senate seat it's it's definitely still too close to call for sure so election night andrew uh, gillum conceded so he can he mm-hmm. unconcede is that a thing you can do <laughs> oh sure remember uh, was it uh, al gore famously oh, yeah. <laughs> took back his concession i mean yeah he so he, he he's kind of, he's played this sort of in the way where he's he's basically said look i'm his line now is every vote needs to be counted. So he's kind of like, I'm, t- I'm moving my stance from concession to we need to count all the votes. But he, he's been up front. He said, look, we need to count all the votes, but I fully recognize the result could turn out to be the same. So there are, are other races still being decided a week after the midterms, if you can believe it out there, audience. Uh, let's take a look at these results from the Arizona Senate race. So as of this morning, Kirsten Cinema is actually up around 32,000 votes, where last Tuesday the race was too close to call and many expected McSally to take the W. Paul, where would Cinema's win leave Democrats in the Senate? So it depends still on what happens with Florida, but I mean, even best case scenario, the Democrats would be down a seat or so in the in the Senate because they did lose uh, three other races. But I mean, you know, the way to look at this, I think, is Democrats essentially, especially if they can hold Florida and if they can win Arizona, uh, basically held serve in this election cycle. This, they were always going to be on the defensive. This was just not a good map for them. They had a lot of incumbents up. Republicans didn't have many. So... Probably, I mean, well, they're for sure going to end up down at least one seat. But all things considered, that's actually a pretty solid show for Democrats. Because really what this does, if you're looking ahead in the long game, this having this base of these swing seats stay in Democratic hands sets them up for big gains in 2020 and 2022. I mean, that's when you can really strike at Republicans. And uh, it gives them a much larger margin for error that they did pretty well in these midterms. So the seat, as if I recall correctly, was held by Jeff Flake, who was, we said he wasn't going to run again. How much of an upset would a cinema win be in this situation? I would 
would definitely be an upset. I mean, Arizona is certainly a more Republican state, although going into this race, it was it was one we certainly all had sort of uh, written down as one that could be in play. Um, it, you would call this one like sort of a lean Republican uh, state as opposed to a steadily or solidly Republican. So, I mean, it, it would be a, it would be a great pickup for Democrats, uh, no question, though not a, a total uh, out of nowhere shocker that they want it. Are there any other outstanding races? Oh yeah, there's still about like 10 House races going. So we know the broad results on the House side. The Democrats have done pretty well. Uh, they picked up about 30 seats. They're gonna have, it looks like, a lead of about 30 seats over Republicans in the House. But the exact numbers, yeah, there's uh, there's still about 10 races that are still outstanding there. So uh, we're still ways before we can actually like write anything down in pen here. And what about the uh, Kemp Abrams race back in Georgia? Yeah, that is, uh, well, a mess also. Uh, lawyers are getting involved there to try to, uh, I mean, Republicans want the vote tally to basically stop because it's gone past a certain deadline and uh, Democrats uh, wanting more votes to be counted. Um, another one that looks good for the Republicans but uh, is gonna be just caught up in a legal mess, much like our friends down in Florida. Well, there was a lot of talk the day after the election about whether it was a blue wave or a blue ripple. I personally prefer to call it the blue splishy splash. Paul, how would you classify it now? <laughs> yeah, splishy splash is pretty good. I mean, it, you know, Democrats should be happy. I mean, the expectations were so high in the middle of summer. There were talks about them taking back the Senate. And of course that didn't happen. And they lost some races, well, in, in particular, like Gillum, uh, Beto O'Rourke, like they lost some races that they really wanted. And, and I think that kind of left a, a sour taste in Democrats' mouth, mouths after, immediately after the election. But I mean, when you look at it with a little bit of distance, especially with uh, some of these tighter races flipping in the days that followed, I mean, you got, it was a pretty solid showing. They won the House decisively. They held on to most of their vulnerable Senate seats. Like. I don't know. Democrats should be pretty happy, but I mean, certainly if it's not the the tsunami that's uh, that uh, some had hoped for that uh, definitively repudiates Trump and puts Republicans on the run. So why was you know the discourse so down on Democrats uh, if it you know was pretty good? I think it is because of some of the the you know the races I was just talking about there with like Gillum and O'Rourke, the the, the faces of this election. Uh, didn't didn't win, and so you know, uh, winning a couple dozen house seats uh, while big at the local level doesn't necessarily always translate to the same wow factor at the federal level. But also, I mean, it's just sort of the way it rolled out. Like you know, a lot of of tight races did flip in the days following Tuesday, and so the end results look a little bit better uh, with a bit of uh, with you know with a bit of time to to have it all shake out. So you know, I, I think that we probably. I think, it, I think we all kind of maybe overreacted. I know I did. I was someone who the next day was talking about how Democrats are disappointed. And uh, I, I think that was probably the wrong take. I think ultimately, you sh if, you, if you're Democratic, you should be happy with how things went last week. Uh, how many more seats actually got flipped since Tuesday's election? Like how many more like seats have been called for the Democrats? Yeah. Yeah, I don't have the solid count on that, but it's like it's like four or five somewhere in, in that range. Uh, so we're, they're up to thirty right now, and as I say, there's still a bunch outstanding, which gives them a pretty solid lead in the house. Which also, by the way, 
big uh, impact of that is it makes it exponentially more likely that Nancy Pelosi is going to remain speaker. She was going to be in trouble if the Democrats only had a narrow lead in the House because there were some Democrats who said they would not support her speakership. But with a lead the size they have now, she should be pretty safe. What other big upsets were there? The, uh, there were a handful of ones uh, in uh, Dan Donovan in uh, New York, New York's 11th district. That was seen as a pretty safe Republican seat. Um, McBath in uh, in uh, Georgia, the uh, suburb of Atlanta. That's one that Democrats had tried to win before and failed. And uh, they uh, and uh, Lucy McBath ended up winning that one. That was a really nice pickup for them. All in all, there were you know there were a handful, I would say, of seats that were not even considered like full swing seats, but like leaning Republican seats that Democrats managed to take. And on the flip side, uh, nothing really on the other side. Uh, there are certainly some swing seats that Republicans won, but in terms of the leaning Democratic uh, side, uh, Republicans didn't really pick them off anywhere. Well, that's been like a really great recap, Paul. Thank you so much. Glad you escaped Florida. Thanks, guys. It's so great to be back on AMD DM. I'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. Up next, Katie is talking about the return of Vine. Sort of. Stay tuned, you'll see what I'm talking about. Dom Hoffman, the creator of Vine, one of three creators, tweeted, our new looping video app is called Byte, launching spring 2019. Joining me to discuss the future of looping videos is former am to dm producer and Vine star, Jesse McLaren. Hi. Hi, Jesse, how are you? Good. Um, I miss you guys. Aw, we miss you too. Um, so what do you know about Byte? I know that Byte used to be Vine 2. Is that right? Uh, I'm trying to figure out that. I think it was like late last year, there's this announcement that there's going to be a Vine 2 mm -hmm. from a co-creator of Vine. Uh, and then it got put off for a year, and now it's back, and it's called Byte. Uh huh. Yeah, I remember that like uh, Dom Hoffman had tweeted out like V2, but it was like a slightly different shade of green that was like not copyright. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you think, like what kind of features could Byte have that would make it better than Vine? I don't know. I feel like they're probably going to try to just make Byte different enough from Vine that uh, they can get away with it, I guess. I don't know. Uh -huh. I, um, I think that they're going to have uh, to compete with a lot of things like uh, musically, um, but I think they should lean into what Vine was really good at, which was just comedy mm -hmm. and uh, the community of uh, being able to shoot something and upload it right on the app, the simplicity of what you're able to do, the sound effects and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, how many times have you personally been uh, scorned by these false announcements that Vine is returning? Do you have like a little like Vine shrine in your home somewhere I can see sort of your, your apartment in the back? I do feel like I've been scorned before. I don't fully trust Byte because of that V2 announcement mostly. That made it seem like uh, this V2 thing was about to launch. It's going to happen any day now. Everyone got really excited. People on Twitter start posting threads of their favorite vines. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't believe it. So what did Vine do for you? And what do you think that Byte will be able to do for other people? Will it be able to sort of allow them to create stuff that makes them go viral? 
Yeah, I think that short form video is a really great gateway into making content, uh, doing, uh, figuring out what you like about making stuff, whether it be if you like performing and being on camera, if you like writing, if you like the technical aspect like editing. And short form is really non-commitment. And Vine is also really great that you shoot and edit in app. So it's really accessible. Mm -hmm. um, but, well, yeah. this is a question for you, but also potentially for Vine star Logan Paul. Um, will you be making a Byte account? I will be making a Byte account. I will probably, the question is how long until I uh, forget I have it. <laughs> <laughs> you think that will happen? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like how often does an app really blow up like with the hype before it happens? I feel like these things usually just explode out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that I, I'm excited to get back on Vine, but I'm also remembering that for a while Vine was around and I wasn't using it anymore. And I think a lot of people weren't. Yeah. So I think they have to figure out like what about what made that happen? What can excite people to bring them in? I don't know exactly what that is, but I do know that I would love for Vine to be back. I would love for it to work, and I'm definitely going to try it, but I'm not, my, my hopes aren't too high. You're keeping them bite-sized. Um, I'm keeping them bite-sized. Did you have that planned? No, no. I swear, you know, off the dome, you know? Uh, <laughs> Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Um, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Are you going to be downloading Byte? Uh, or will you just be watching old Vine compilations on YouTube forever and crying? Um, let us know using the hashtag aim to dm Up next, Hayes sits down with author Eva Chen. Stay tuned. Here's an Instagram from Eva Chen. Me as a first grader, and me today, reading Juno to a room full of first graders. Eva Chen, director of fashion partnerships at Instagram, and author of the new children's book, Juno Valentine and the Magical Shoes, joins me now. Hello. Hello, that's me. That is you. You were an adorable first grader. Oh, Just thank so you. small. The cheeks. The Super teeny tiny. So small. So tell me, yes. how did the first graders react to the book? They liked it, which makes me feel really good. They like laughed at all the right places. They loved the illustration of Lady Gaga. They all knew oh. who Frida Kahlo was, like Marie Curie. Wow. They did not Cultured. know. Cultured. Cultured children. They did not know who Yayoi Kusama was. Oh. Yet, though. Yet. What are they learning? Yeah. <laughs> Education in America. Speaking of, you've <laughs> posted some of the like, really tough questions that you've gotten from kids at the readings. Yes. What are some of your favorites that you've had so far? Oh, the, f the best question I ever got was, uh, do you know Margaret Keegan? And I was like, Who's Margaret Keegan? Huh. I don't know who Margaret Keegan is. And I literally, is. in my mind, was like, Margaret Keegan, Margaret Keegan. Was she a suffragette? Was she a scientist? And she's like, that's my mom. And oh, I my like, God. I don't know Margaret Keegan. I'm sorry. I also I, got asked if I like Cheez-Its. Do mm -hmm. you like Cheez-Its? Uh, eh, you're all right. on it. I'm meh on I cheese said I crackers. Like, I, I said I liked it, and they got very excited. And <laughs> then I said I liked... Um, gummy bears, and they lost their minds. Like, first graders are a great audience. I love that. So in the book, Juno Valentine gets to try on some of the shoes of women who made history. Why did you decide to include real people's shoes instead of fabulous imaginary ones? Like, what was that inspiration for you? Well, I think for me, I, I don't think any, everyone has imagined walking in someone else's shoes for the day, right? Uh, so like, who would you yeah. walk in for a day? Oh, God. Um, I don't even know. I'm spur of the moment. I. 
see. Pass, hard pass. I see hard. This is hard. <laughs> it is. Tables turning on hate. Oh no, oh. I've lost control of the interview. Oh no, uh, no. But for me, like, I really just kind of wanted girls to know that there are all these amazing women out there in the world. Um, that you can step into their shoes for the day and just kind of picture that and have that feeling. And I also wanted to write a book that parents would like too. Mm. So parents obviously would love the references to Lady Gaga, mm. Anna Wintour, Oprah Winfrey, like holding up the car keys. You get a car, <laughs> you get a car. So imagining that you can step into their shoes right. and become them for a day was a narrative in the book. You also have another children's book on the way already about yes. some of the iconic women of history and their works. Who are some of the women that you feature? Give us a little preview. Oh, it's an A to Z guide of amazing women, mm. and um, some of them are lesser known. Like, uh, there's a British suffragette named Emmeline Pankhurst who got uh, arrested, I think, seven times in a year for nice. fighting for women to have the vote, which I think is especially timely right now, mm -hmm. if I may kind of have that political tout. Um, not just the mom and Mary Poppins fighting just, for the right to vote. Exactly. Uh, there is Dorothy Hodgkin, who's another, uh, who's a scientist who was this amazing crystallographer, um, and she was the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, so um, it's uh, there's so many, and then of course there are well-known women like Nina Simone, mm. Malala, um, Oprah again, she gets a double shout out. Good for her, Oprah. good for her. <laughs> yeah. All right, so clearly you think a lot about clothes. Do you have one item of clothing from your childhood that you really just miss or think about a lot? Well, I think about that pink dress that you guys showed oh, earlier. Because really? my mom always tells me that that was my favorite dress ever. I would insist on wearing that. I had a teeny tiny pair of high heels to go with it. Oh. My mom put me in high heels, that is correct. So they were teeny tiny, like one and a half inch heels. So I think about that look a lot and I wish I had it for my daughter who mm. could have worn it. That's much better than the one I think about a lot which was like a shiny rainbow like tracksuit that my parents put me in when I was like six and I, I liked it because it was the style at the time but looking back, pass. Oh, no, I think that's hashtag iconic. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay so in addition <laughs> to everything else you are also a self-described breakfast buffet aficionado. Yes, which am. Same. What is your number one tip for smuggling breakfast items out of those buffets? Um, ask for a to-go cup. Ooh. Just be like, oh, I want to take some coffee to go, and then mm. be like, boop, boop, or... Wait, like, what can you get in the to-go cup, though? Like, Everything. can you stuff a muffin in there? You what could, are you doing? It fits a muffin perfectly. Mm. You could also put granola in there. You could put some, like, freshly sliced fruit in there. Fair. I have smuggled Eggs Benedict in a to-go coffee cup before. That is witchcraft. Really advanced people would bring their own takeout containers, which oh, I'm not quite that extra yet. <laughs> okay, you are the director of fashion partnerships at Instagram, <laughs> and you have a cool million followers. My Instagram, on the other hand, needs some help. I'm gonna bring up some posts okay. I'm you know, proud of, but I feel like didn't get the likes that they truly deserve. Okay, so okay. I, would you mind grading them and giving yep. me some feedback yep. on how I can improve? Let's do a little bit of a triage here. Okay, thank okay. you. Okay, so first up is a moment at the Met. No hashtag, I decided to just throw it up, no filter, just because I like the shot. What do you think? I would give that an A. Oh, oh, honored. Okay, so I would give that an A because it's an amazing photo, mm -hmm. obviously. It's a metagram because you are taking a photo of someone doing a painting mm -hmm. of a statue. So it's like nuanced and it has many different layers. The only thing I that I would like say that could make it better is if you gave a little bit more context mm. in the caption. Like if you described who was like looking over the shoulder. Like, do you follow the account Humans of NY? Of course. Yeah, so it's like, that's what I love about Humans of NY. It's these like amazing stories. All right, well next up uh, we have, I have come across an ex-dog. He was a dog once, 
but now he's a decorative throw pillow. Hashtag dogs of Instagram, hashtag dachshund, hashtag miniature dachshund, hashtag dapple dachshund, hashtag bean bagels, hashtag NYC, hashtag East Harlem. I was really into hashtags when I put this one up. Listen, hashtags are a great, great way to connect to a community. Mm -hmm. I think hashtags sometimes get a bad rap because people are like, ugh, too mm -hmm. many hashtags. But like anyone who loves Dotsons, which let's be honest, who doesn't? Correct. Like it's a really good way to connect to the Dotson community. Okay. Like, I use the hashtag Bookstagram and I follow the hashtag Bookstagram, which is like the book Instagram hashtag. Uh, yeah. And over 21 million people have used that. So it's like if you follow that hashtag, you'll get book recommendations mm -hmm. and you'll be part of this like big global book audience. But All right. let's see, that Instagram I would give a B. Okay. Because I love the caption. Mm -hmm. It's funny, it's ironic, it's like really good. But I wish the photo had more dog and less couch. Fair, fair mm. enough. Okay, I have a, nothing if not fair. <laughs> okay, this one. Instagram. This one I just captioned pie to be. That one I filter would say, moody. Put it on Instagram stories. Oh That's wow. That's in Instagram stories. Okay, so fair. I would have done a whole Instagram stories series mm -hmm. of like the making of the pie. Okay. And so, so literally from the ingredients to like you covered in flour, because I'm just imagining you like with flour all over your face. Up in the hair. Up That's in not the just hair. gray up there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's flour. And then like the whole transition, like you kind of sneaking bites. Like I think I think of that as an Instagram story. Okay. One more. I took this picture yesterday while walking to the subway and maybe my the best summation of spring at NYC ever. Hashtag spring, hashtag magnolias, mm -hmm. hashtag one perfect shot, hashtag union square, hashtag no filter needed, hashtag making out, hashtag later gram. I am into this Instagram, and I would give it also an A. Oh wow! I that did is a that way is a, better than I thought. That here. is a good-looking Instagram. Well, thank you. You don't think that's like almost the perfect Instagram? There's like the flowers. Oh, I mean, these I love it. Two but ladies doing Tai Chi or whatever they were. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they were shooting they, an ad. Actually, they were shooting an ad. Yeah. Well, while someone good. makes out in the background. While someone makes out in the background, the layers to it. All right, well, I think thank you. Are you about to like quit your job and become like a professional Instagram? I am. Answer? If you can hook me up with like <laughs> the content money for that, please sponsor me, someone. I, I approve. You did a really good job. Yes. All right, well, before we go, Eva, can you explain to me how to do your famous baby giraffe pose? Like, please. Oh, my God. This show baby me. giraffe thing like just kind of exploded, and I honestly was being completely ironic when mm -hmm. I started it. So I started taking these like selfies at a mirror in the Instagram offices, which, by the way, are in the same building. Do you know we have Wait, an office? Wait, what? You're here? So I'm in the Astor place, but there is a Facebook office literally around the corner huh. in the same building. So All we right. share a wall. So literally this morning I was at the office, and then my publicist was like, BuzzFeed's now. I was like... It's cool. I'm like in I'm the same building. Two minutes, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but so I started taking these selfies and then someone commented like, like you look extra skinny or something, which is like never mm. a true goal. But yeah. I was like, it's the pose, it's not me. And then I did hashtag baby giraffe pose. And then like thousands of people started doing hashtag baby giraffe. So should, do you want me to demonstrate? Yes, please, because I, I need to learn this. All right, let's do this. So okay. we're gonna move forward a bit. All right, all right. We're in quite the right outfit. Okay, so baby okay. giraffe pose. Yes. So Step down, normally down when you're doing a pose, mm -hmm. most people are just like, right, we like, got one of, one you of know, these. whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hit so me. put one foot in front of the other slightly, okay. right? Okay. But then kind of stack them in front of each other. Okay. It's very difficult on balance. Okay. Okay. Then you kind of stand. Okay. And you lean back a little. Okay. Leaning back. And then you gotta pop the butt out a bit. Arch your back and pop the butt. Okay. Now popped. Popped. It's like bend and snap, except okay. baby giraffe pose. Okay. And then you kind of. 
just look how long and svelte you look. I look magnificent. Yes! I am the black swan. You are the black <laughs> baby giraffe. I'm into it. It's good. All right, Eva, thank you so much for joining us. Juno Valentine of the Magical Shoot is available now. Up next, I talk to BuzzFeed News reporter Azeem Garyashi about the threat of superbugs. Thank you so much for educating me. Here's a tweet from Tasha about BuzzFeed News' Netflix docuseries, Follow This. That superbug episode, though. Azeen Garyashi, BuzzFeed News science reporter, joins me now to talk about her reporting on superbugs and phage therapy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I hadn't seen that tweet. Uh, yeah, uh, you got fans out there. I love it. So let's start simple. What is a superbug? Enlighten me. So you know what bacteria are. I do. Kind of. I remember that from fifth grade science. Right. So superbugs are basically uh, bacteria on steroids. Okay. Bacteria are constantly evolving, mm -hmm. um, and we happen to have really good things to fight them with right. called antibiotics that can kill them. Um, however, bacteria are constantly evolving, so, and we haven't come up with new antibiotics in a long time. So superbugs are basically those bacteria that have evolved so much that antibiotics no longer can kill them. Well, that sounds... Bad. This is really yes. bad. So what potentially catastrophic effects would you say these superbugs could have in the next few decades? Like, scare me. Do it. Right. So you should already be scared because mm -hmm. something like 2 million people in the U.S. are already getting infected with superbugs oh. every year. Mm. And 700,000 people are dying across the world each year of superbug infections. And it's estimated that by 2050, it's going to be something like 10 million people dying every year. Um, it's going to surpass car accidents and uh, cancer, it's gonna be the number one killer unless we figure out something to do about it. Well, that's cool. <laughs> well, yeah. in the episode, you accompany a scientist to a sewage treatment plant to collect bacteriophages. Let's take a quick look at that. So we're gonna use this pole here with a, a little bucket at the end. Um, and we're just basically just gonna scoop up from the giant river of sewage in there. Let's not drop it. That's the hard part. <laughs> Do you purposely try not to get solid matter? Yeah. I see it down there. Yeah, it gets more disgusting in the lab. Okay, so I came into the segment thinking about how hungry I am and how excited I was for lunch, and I am fixed. I am cured, thanks to yeah. you, Azine. So how do phages work to kill bacteria compared to antibiotics? Like, what is the sitch there? Right. Well, first of all, it was a million times grosser actually being in there. because I imagine. What you can't see in that is really how bad it smelled when I first walked in. I, like, almost ran out. Like, Thank God for up. no smell-o-vision. Yeah. So basically, phages, because they only attack bacterial cells, they leave anything else alone. Mm -hmm. So wherever you can find lots of bacteria, you will find lots of phages. Mm -hmm. Hence why the scientist is going to a sewage treatment plant every week to get samples. Right. Um, and basically the way that they work is they have these claw, once they identify their specific targets, they have these claws and they sort of glom onto a bacterial cell. Technical term. Yes, glom. Then they shoot their DNA into the cell, they reproduce wildly, and then they cause the bacterial cell to explode. Mm -hmm. And that releases tons more phages. So it's a medicine that is tailor-made to whatever bacterial infection you have, and it naturally increases until the bacteria that it targets are gone, and then it's flushed out of your system. So why isn't Big Pharma invested, investing in this, really? Like, I don't hear anything about it in the U.S. Right. Well, for one thing, I think the economic incentives have not been there for a long time. Antibiotics 
don't make as much money, people you know take them and then they get better and they don't have to take them anymore. Versus you know a big blockbuster cancer drug or Viagra or whatever that <laughs> can make them a ton of money. Um, also, these are sort of nature's natural medicine mm -hmm. is, is what it's been called. You know, there are um, things that are found out there in the world. The scientist can go to a sewage treatment plant, plant and like isolate this and have essentially what will become medicine. Um, and that sort of eliminates, it, it creates confusing questions around can you patent something right. that exists in nature? Huh. And it also makes it so that, you know, it's unclear um, what one thing they would be asking the FDA for permission to approve. Right, especially since these are viruses that occur in nature. They're basically the predators for mm -hmm. these bacteria. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, you talked to Tom Patterson and scientist Stephanie Strathy, who co-authored a book, The Perfect Predator, mm -hmm. about Tom's experience almost dying from antibiotic-resistant infection until receiving phage therapy. Do you think that this sort of thing is going to be just for like extreme cases like Tom where he's dying, man, we have to get him the phages, or do you think it's going to become a more common thing? Like, oh, I have a cuff, phage me, doctor. Right, well, Stephanie is such an interesting example because not only is she a wife who went to like the ends of the world to save her husband's life, she's also a very powerful, very badass scientist. Um, and she has since set up this uh, center for phage therapy at UC San Diego where she works. Um, that is trying to push through clinical trials. And Ben Chan, the, the scientist that I went fishing for in sewage with, mm -hmm. he's also trying to push through clinical trials. So okay. more and more scientists, you know, we've known about the option of phage therapy for a while, but antibiotics were so appealing because they're mass producible and whatever, they don't have these questions looming over them. But now that we're sort of getting to a point where we need other options, more and more scientists like them are trying to say like, hey, we need this to become a part of our medical system. We need this to become an option so that it's not just for the people who are willing to go to the ends of the earth to find a treatment for their loved ones. Right. So that potentially there could be, in hospitals, there could be a way to immediately screen someone's infection and produce phages that they can take sort of on the spot. That's the, that's okay. the fantasy I've heard <laughs> them cook up. Well, I am in that specializing combination of horrified and hopeful at this okay. point. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Follow This is now streaming on Netflix. Up next, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. Katie and I are reading your tweets. Hi. Welcome back, everyone. You guys uh, had several things to at us today. So let's just get right into reading some tweets. Yeah. Um, you all had a lot to say about our laundry <clears throat> detergent discussion. Mrs. Smith says, don't drink the laundry wine, uh, <laughs> but do use the detergent, swap out the bladder for actual wine, and boom, hidden laundry room wine. That's genius level right there. It's, it's not a bad idea, I'll be honest. Yeah. But I will say, if you are drinking hidden laundry room wine, yeah. that might be you might be at a higher health risk for uh, you know, unhealthy behaviors than if you're just simply just chugging straight wow. detergent. Uh, with the real talk today, Cini <laughs> Martinez, you said, Tide will begin making pizza next. I can see it. Take the powder version, sprinkle a little around the crust. Mm, you know, uh, back in the height of Tide Pod mm. uh, mania uh, last winter, there was a, a really viral pictures of a furry who baked Tide Pods onto a pizza, making Tide Pod pizza. Just looping you in with the uh, the viral furry uh, tweet situations. Um, Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> um, Derek Sanskrit had this to say about bite. One of my greatest regrets as an adult quasi-millennial is never getting good at Vine, so I will be overcompensating on bite, guaranteeing that both it and I will fail miserably. 
Oh, don't worry, Derek. We we believe in you. You can do this you know? eventually when it comes out. Eventually. Yeah, spring of nineteen. Just do your best. <laughs> all right, do your so best. Thank you to all of our guests today: Brianna Sachs, Miles Klee, Paul McLeod, Eva Chen, Jesse McLaren, and Azine Goryashi. Isaac is back tomorrow, uh, hosting with Amber Jamison. Bye, guys.